1: You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every
0: weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. So, Jason, one of the headlines that caught me uh, this morning uh, and earlier today was Governor Cuomo saying New York City, the last region of the state to remain on lockdown, it could begin to reopen on June eight so we are seeing things continuing to move forward this has cases virus cases top 5.8 million deaths over 360,000 let's bring back with us Dr. Ian Lusbader he's clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center a friend of the show on the phone from New York City uh, Dr. Lusbader nice to have you back with us how's your week been okay
2: thanks so much hope you guys are staying well A busy week for sure, seeing a lot of patients who fortunately have been discharged from the hospital Mm -hmm. with COVID. And we're seeing a number of the sort of sequelae or side effects or people that have been quite ill, some mildly and some more severely with, you know, residual cough, chest pain, abnormal liver function tests. So not everyone gets out completely unscathed, as we've seen. Right. All right. So why do you
0: let them out then?
2: Well, Uh, If someone is well enough breathing on their own, doesn't need a machine, uh, people are not kept in until they're perfect because that could take weeks or even months, and uh, it's really not efficient to do that. So as long as someone gets through the kind of acute uh, phase where they're breathing on their own, room air and so forth, uh, able to move around, eat – Uh, They may not have – they may not feel 100 percent, and they may not feel 100 percent for a prolonged time. You just can't keep everyone in sort of uh, indefinitely or or until there's perfection achieved.
1: So help help us synthesize that, sort of the after effects of this with what is going to be a gradual reopening of New York City. As Carol said, the last uh, region of New York State to open – What are you expecting to happen in the short term, and what advice do you have for New Yorkers? So
2: I think we're seeing a lot of people... Anxious, anxious about returning. Certainly, we don't have that vaccine, uh, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, That would certainly be reassuring. We're seeing a number of patients with antibodies that are positive, which certainly would help, but nowhere near the herd immunity of, you know, 30, 40, 50 percent. That would be great. So people, I think, are very uh, concerned. Certainly older people or people at risk groups. But I think most of the patients, most people are just happy to get back, want to get back. And I think a little bit of that is play it by ear. There will be some risks. There will be some probable increase in cases, you know, the so-called second wave. Hard to know how big that will be because certainly in New York, we've had a lot of patients who've had COVID. So it's certainly, uh, we have a little bit of a heads up or a little bit of a a leg up in other areas where at least some of the population has antibodies. Um, But I think if you're older, sicker, uh, have have a compromised immune system COPD lung issues heart issues elderly probably best to be very safe and 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 be some of the last to return to normal activity
0: You know, what's interesting, too, that you bring up antibodies There's a great story. um, I think I read it was in in the Journal or out of Dow Jones and just talked about um, the obscure trade of basically blood, uh, that people are looking for the blood of recovered COVID-19 patients. It's become a hot commodity because everybody wants to look at that blood and learn more about the virus. But that's one of the crucial steps, right, in kind of understanding where we've been, where we're going.
2: Yeah, there's no question that the blood of um, patients who've been sick and recovered completely uh, is is a hot commodity, certainly for convalescent plasma trials that are going on in many hospitals where sick patients are being given that convalescent plasma, and we think hopefully will shorten their illness and hopefully save lives. But um, that blood is also useful for many tests, all these small biotech companies, some of which are not totally regulated, want those uh, blood samples to run as controls uh, because they're developing antibody tests as well, um, and research labs. So there's sort of a uh, Wild West scramble for the blood of patients who've done well, really to better understand the nature of the disease, what are the nature of the antibodies, um, and even just for regular lab testing. So we've seen some, like, blood brokers and uh, uh, sort of the shadier side of uh, of biotech uh, mm-hmm. uh, occurring, and it's unfortunate because in any crisis, you've got people doing well and doing good things. The patients, many of my patients say, "I really want. I'm so happy I survived. I'd love to donate blood," and they can at the New York Blood Center, where where not only blood donations are are taken happily, but also for convalescent plasma. So patients who've survived and done well can have that plasma taken out yeah. and used in, in a variety of studies, but they're also bad people who are trying to right.
1: extract high prices. We're speaking with Dr. Ian Lesbader, one of our go-to docs in helping us understand this virus. I do wanna bring you one headline uh, that has crossed to Bloomberg, the former officer uh, in Minneapolis who has been implicated in the death of George Floyd. He has been charged with murder and manslaughter. Uh, That is according to some local news reports there in Minneapolis. Obviously, that has triggered riots and looting there in Minneapolis. It has drawn national attention uh, in many ways. We'll be bringing you updates throughout the day In our world and national newscast, but I did want to bring you that headline because it is clearly uh, top of mind for many of us.
0: You know, Ian, um, one of the other things that we're thinking about when it comes to the virus, there was a story also that just talked about um, a farm in Tennessee where every single worker has COVID. And just, you know, a reminder, I think it was roughly 200 employees that had been infected. Just a reminder that, you know, this is obviously we don't want to see anybody get the virus, but it also is something that impacts, you know, our food supply chain. I mean, we're continuing to still see some pretty big outbreaks around the country.
2: No question. And I think people um, really are uh, seem to fall into the cavalier camp uh, where there uh, a lot of young people feel they're impervious or in a low risk group and or socializing or or running around without masks and then there's another group that's very concerned and and mad if they see people around them i've seen this even in families where uh different generations um, take this uh, more or less seriously and older parents may be angry at uh, at younger people for for not uh being prudent and and wearing masks all the time which is difficult i mean people it is an adjustment not everyone has gotten used to that But uh, certainly we do need critical infrastructure like food supply and and others that are safe. Uh, And without a vaccine, all we can really do is social distancing and wear masks. You know, and we need to do more studies to see if some medications, we talked about this last week. uh, Obviously, some drugs like hydroxychloroquine have pro and con data, but we really need those studies. We have to remember this broke basically in january so we've had five or six months it hasn't been with us for years and it takes time to get these studies done
0: that's a really good point um you know that it does feel like it's been a long time but it really hasn't been and ian i I mean i do want to ask you
1: know we talked a little bit about this before but We've talked about this with a lot of heads of <clears throat> hospitals, and as we've discussed, you've been on the front lines of this. And I wonder, for you as a doctor, I mean, how does your practice change in the short and midterm coming out of this? And, you know, setting a second wave aside and, and assuming that we're going to be able to deal with another COVID outbreak medically. But I do wonder, you know, your interactions with pac- patients, your conversations with them. like, How are you thinking about this going forward just as a practitioner here?
2: Well, uh, we're seeing patients with N95 masks and face shields, and that certainly um, is closer. At least patients are now coming back into the office, which is great. Uh, Telemedicine has been very, very helpful, and a lot of patients who really are afraid to come in, they shouldn't because we're – checking temperatures for, for people coming in. So prudent steps are being done to reassure patients that it is safe to come in for screening, testing, colonoscopy in, in the office. Uh, And it's great to have telemedicine, but there's definitely a bit of a barrier. You know, you're seeing patients with, you're wearing gloves, you're wearing a mask and a face shield. They're wearing a mask. You know, it it is, uh, everyone is adapting and, um, it's certainly good to be in person, but it definitely is is uh, it's getting used to. And you have to make extra effort to really get a good diagnosis and reassure people and encourage them that it's okay not only to come in but to do testing, that it's safe to go to a lab to do blood tests. So um, there are definitely a lot of hurdles, and I think we're going to see that as uh, we try to get people back in Uh, Along the way. And I think if there is a second wave, which is certainly possible, that will really be a shock to the economy and to people's psyches because they um, people don't like to feel vulnerable.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah, I have this. to say, I have been. Uh, I had to go out for a routine test, and I was very impressed with the procedures, and they really thought about the patients coming in and were very careful. I was in another situation in a doctor's office where I felt like, it's a little crowded. Uh, yeah. So uh, it was a little odd. Um, I just want to ask you quickly, um, you've got Florida, their COVID-19 cases up 2.3% versus a previous seven-day average of 1.3%. Is it just because more people are being tested, or is this possibly early indications of a second wave in your view?
2: you? know, I think it's a combination. I think we're getting a lot more tests and hopefully reliable tests. We talked about those blood brokers. I would stick with national labs that are doing those tests, the antibody tests and the swabs, much more reliable. But I think we probably, especially in Florida, now that uh, once you start getting cases, there there tends to be that curve and I don't think a lot of states have peaked yet. New York has peaked, and we know it's coming down, and that's why we're returning. But I think many other states, and I think Florida, too, may not have seen the peak yet. And uh, this may not be a second wave. This may just be the first wave that is continuing to ripple through in a state that is more spread out than New York. And in, in New York City, you have a lot of exposure in a very dense area. In Florida, I'm just wondering if this may not be just the natural progression.
0: Right. You mentioned New York, COVID-19 cases up uh, four-tenths of a percent. That's in line with the seven-day average, which has been up four tenths of a percent. So yeah, there's the, the differences. Um, Ian, thank you so much. Really appreciate, um, as always, your insight um, and love that we get to check in with you every week. Dr. Ian Lusbader, have a good weekend. Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Lusbader joining us on the phone right here in New York City.
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: China has been front and center this entire week. We're expecting any minute to hear from the president. Before we take you there, let's get some context leading into it with Dexter Roberts, Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana, former Bloomberg Businessweek China bureau chief. He's also the author of a fantastic and timely, relatively new book. Uh, It came out earlier this year. It's called The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker the Factory, and the Future of the World. He joins us on on the phone from Montana. Tiff, really? nice to have you back with us. So this has been a pretty remarkable week, and I remember catching up with you earlier in the year, and the Hong Kong protests were still, you know, very much going on in many ways. It was sort of as we were getting into the pandemic. As you look at what's going on between the U.S. and China now, what's the most important thing we need to know?
4: Well, you know, uh, I think that uh, the decision by Beijing to pursue this national security law, which frankly was a surprise to a lot of the world, uh, is a clear signal that they are, are not in a mood for compromise. And I think they knew before they made this move uh, through the National People's Congress in Beijing that uh, that the response would be overwhelming, and it really has, with condemnation from countries around the world. And And frankly, you know, uh far more uh, you know an uptick in the protests in hong kong so they knew this was going to happen but they decided to go ahead
0: well uh, why okay so it's interesting why did what but i am kind of still you know curious about the timing of this and why now
4: well i think that their calculation is that what with COVID 19 and the world being distracted with dealing with the pandemic They can actually get away with doing this now. Mm. And I think it's something they probably intended to do all along. And uh, this seemed like probably uh, an opportunity right now.
1: And so what are the implications? I mean, especially from an economic perspective, you know, you ran China for the magazine. You understand the economics of China so well and the economic relationship between the two countries. What's at stake here in your estimation, Tiff?
4: Well, I think I think it's, and I think they are demonstrating that their desire to have clamp down on on these growing protests in Hong Kong, and have uh, and basically sacrifice this promise they made to give Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy is uh, is I mean they've decided that, that this is this is worth doing uh, simply because they cannot tolerate this show of what they see as unrest, and what, what frankly, is seen as, as weakness in Beijing, to, to have these protests ongoing and not have a strong response from Beijing. So I think they've made that calculus. I think the, the, the impact is likely to be huge, and particularly on, on Americans and American companies. We've got, I think, uh, last count, 85,000 Americans living in Hong Kong, over 1,300 American companies, including all our major finance, financial companies, they're all in Hong Kong and uh, depending on how this unfolds uh, and and what we hear from the president later this after well very shortly uh, this uh, you know they could make there could be a, a retaliatory move that would uh, strip the special status of Hong Kong which ha- which would have an enormous impact on American business and global business in Hong Kong and an enormous impact on the Hong Kong economy
0: Tiff why would the Chinese risk that and put that at risk
4: I think again. I think we we, uh, we run the risk when we look at China of uh, of of not realizing how important it is to them to have firm control mm-hmm. and the party, which of course is the government of China, uh, it matters very very much. Uh, Xi Jinping has been very bold about being far more assertive that the you know uh, the power of the party. Uh, The role it's trying to take globally is far more assertive, whether it's Hong Kong or the South China Sea. And I think they've, you know, politics in control. This is, you know, this is this is a demonstration of sort of the old ways that have sort of resurfaced under Xi, where economics comes second.
0: Well, is it also, though, they need to do this to survive? You know, Vince Signorella, who watches the markets for us, and he and I have been going back and forth about China all week. And he said, you know, They've got a really pressing problem in China right now. The Communist Party is, what, 1% of the population. They've only got military to really protect their power base. And there's a lot more pressures coming from the masses, right, who either want change or are not living in a great way. And there's a lot more pressure on the government.
4: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Carol, at what you've been discussing there. Uh, I think that I think they are aware that they're going to be facing Uh, a very uh, difficult economic environment later this year. We've already seen huge layoffs of uh, of, uh, employees in China. They're readying for a a shock to their export sector uh, with the downturn in the rest of the world. And often we've seen uh, the response, somewhat interesting, somewhat surprisingly perhaps, is to make a gesture like this. And I think part of it is almost an effort to distract the populace from problems at home. Hmm. Chinese people, uh, you know, quite they can be quite proud about the rise of China. And this Mm -hmm. is a way to say, look, you know, foreign forces are trying to hold us back and they're 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 doing it in Hong Kong. And and, uh, you know, don't don't blame us for economic problems at home. Look at what the world's trying to do to China and Hong Kong.
1: Well, and it's interesting, Tiff, you know, as we think about from our perspective in in the world, in the Western world specifically, and what Hong Kong means, I I think it's hard to overstate the importance that that has. And I think we've talked about this with you before, that it has in the global financial markets. I've been coming back to this time and time again across this week that it is just it holds a remarkably important place, literally and I think figuratively in in some ways in in being such a key part of the the global financial system again as someone who's seen that up close and personal what's at stake for to be a little parochial about it what's at stake for Wall Street here
4: well as I said earlier I mean we have uh, over 1300 of our top companies operating in Hong Kong we have all of our major financial companies yeah uh, they you know they they've used Hong Kong as a as a perch in asia to do business in greater china and that frank that that uh that role that hong kong has played is frankly you know at greater risk right now than it has been in in many many years and so i think uh the impact would be very very devastating for wall street um and i you know frankly i'm 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 not very optimistic looking at i don't think that they've left the u.s with a lot of choice i mean we have this thing called the Hong Kong uh, Human Rights and Democracy Act that Trump signed in November. And it states very clearly that the State Department uh, does an annual review and they have to, uh, they have to show that uh, China is still giving Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy or uh, we, we have to alter the relationship that we have with them and take away the special privileges that Hong Kong has on tariffs and so on. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, the national security law shows that uh, China is not, no longer – Uh, guaranteeing that Hong Kong has this high degree of autonomy.
0: What's interesting, Tiff, is, and you know this so well, you understand China, you understand, uh, you know, foreign businesses coming into China. And the thinking was, better for us to be involved in Chinese society that we will help facilitate change, right? And that was the thinking of a lot of global, global multinationals. And yet, it hasn't necessarily played out that way, or has it?
4: I think I think we were overly optimistic. And uh, that was, of course, the rationale for uh, giving China most favored nation on permanent normal status uh, back when under the Clinton administration and then China entering the World Trade Organization in 2001. And it really hasn't really it hasn't turned out that way. I think I think it's fair to say that. Uh, I mean, I remember I, I was in. I was in Beijing in 97 when Hong Kong was returned to, the main, uh, returned to the mainland. I remember writing a piece, and this was quite common, saying uh, Hong Kong will change China. The, the, the free ideas, the right. free economy there will change China. And I was wrong, and, uh, and a lot of other people were wrong as well. China is intent on changing Hong Kong, and uh, they don't seem very concerned about what the rest of the world thinks.
0: Do they have to be concerned or can they do their own thing? I mean, they're so massive. And I just do wonder what their role is in, in the world at large going forward. What does it need to be or does it not, you know, can they just kind of do their own thing?
4: Well, I think they are overestimating their ability to, to, to do, go it alone. But it is worth noting that when Hong Kong was returned to the mainland, it, it, it was, its GDP was about one-fifth of the total mainland economy. And now it's about three percent. You know, there's been wow. they haven't made a lot of progress, but there's been uh, uh, efforts by China to build up Shanghai as an alternate uh, financial center. Uh, again, not very much progress made. But it is the fact that Hong Kong is very important. Uh, I think as it's very important as a sort of symbolic. Uh, 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 the, the policy towards Hong Kong right. shows us what China is you know, thinking about economic reform. But it is, frankly, less important to China than it was Uh, those many years ago.
1: All right. Dexter Tiff Roberts, thank you so much. Mansfield Fellow at the University of Montana, former Bloomberg Business Week China Bureau Chief, author of The Myth of Chinese Capitalism, The Worker, the Factory, and the Future
3: of the World. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. We're going to keep a close eye on the markets for the last hour of trading here. We did see, as you just heard from, Charlie's stocks go down and then go up. So we're going to try and make sense of what the market heard and how they interpreted what the president said. Another important voice we heard from earlier in the day was that of Fed Chair Jay Powell speaking. He's been speaking a lot lately. Uh, Let's take a sample of some of the things that he highlighted.
4: We do have this precious grant of independence, and that really means that we need to stay stay in our lane and just do those things that Congress assigns us to do. The tools that we're using now are lending tools, not spending tools. So we don't have the ability to gr- to make grants of money to particular groups of people, no matter how directly they're affected. We crossed a lot of red lines uh, that, that had not been crossed before, and I, I'm very comfortable that this is that situation in which you... You do that, and then you figure it out uh, afterward. A second wave could be, would would really undermine public confidence and might make for a longer, uh, you know, a a significantly longer uh, uh, recovery and weaker recovery.
0: All right. And that was Fed Chair Jay Powell speaking earlier with uh, Alan Blinder, of course, formerly uh, of the Fed as well. They were doing a Princeton event virtually. Did you hear what he said? He used your line. Lending, not spending. I know, the t shirt The World right? Tour, 2020 World Tour, <laughs> Lending, Not Spending. J-PAL, the World Tour.
1: JP and the Feds, even some of the former Feds. Alan Blinder, as you said, uh, yeah. coming in. Let's bring in one of our favorites, Yelena Shalecheva, Senior U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics, joining us on the phone from Long Island. All right, so you heard a little bit of a, the smorgasbord there from the Fed Chair. Yelena, what's the most important thing you heard uh, from j
5: Ah, yes, hi. Uh, so I, I would say that um, uh, the uh, the bits that you played basically suggest that uh, the Fed will not stop, will not hesitate to do whatever it takes to support economic growth. And uh, they would like to be very transparent about what they're doing and why they're doing it. So uh, to me also, what was very interesting in uh, today's remarks, uh, uh, was a confirmation that uh, lending facilities uh, will be key uh, front and center of uh, the Fed's actions going forward and the key area for the uh, expansion in the balance sheet. Uh, since uh, the Fed is actually tapering QE purchases, they will focus more and more on this lending program uh, uh, going forward in coming months. So he highlighted the multifaceted nature of engaging in the extraordinary powers under uh, the so-called 13-3 section of the Federal Reserve Act, uh, unusual and exigent circumstances. Not only were they able to backstop financial markets without even uh, starting to lend under these new programs, but uh, also uh, they uh, will try to address the key issue uh, of this economic crisis, the job losses by lending to uh, different uh, size businesses, small and uh, medium sized businesses, and try
0: to tailor these lending programs towards their needs. Yeah, and I was listening to some of what he said out. I mean, you're talking about pretty small amounts of money, but for a small business, that's a game changer. I'm still kind of blown away that here we are in week 11, and then this money is just starting to go out. Um, and I do want to point out about a half an hour, we did get ahead that the Fed's slowing uh, the pace of Treasury buying to $4.5 billion a day from $5 billion. So they're continuing to slow down and back off of that. Um, but I do worry, you know, Yelena, you watch the economy, you watch big businesses, small businesses. I do wonder about how many small businesses are not going to make it through because the money's just coming too late?
5: Well, some of them will not. And, uh, you know, we will uh, see uh, some data on that front uh, in the releases that we will get next week. So one of them, uh, obviously, is the payrolls report uh, that we're going to get on Friday. But before we get that, we will also receive the data from ADP on um, and, and ADP actually splits private payrolls, not only by industry, but also by the size of uh, companies. So uh, th- that will be an interesting metric uh, to assess how different uh, businesses of different sizes are faring this crisis. So that is coming out on Wednesday. But in terms of uh, bigger uh, payrolls report from BLS that we uh, are going to get on Friday, We will get a smaller decline, but uh, that's not uh, a small one by historical standards. So following a 20% – a 20 million decline in jobs in April, we will probably get something closer to 7 to 8 million uh, job losses uh, uh, reported for the month of May. So, and we will also see uh, a spike in the unemployment rate. And uh, our expectations are for 20% unemployment rate in the month of May. This is actually very close to the peak levels that we observed during the Great Depression. Um, One uh, green shoot I should offer probably is uh, jobless claims. Mm. So uh, we already saw uh, yesterday in the weekly uh, claims report that continuing claims tick down a little bit. So that is a positive sign. This is one of the uh, very few nascent signs of recovery as states are starting to reopen. But we actually need to see that continue for several weeks to uh, actually confirm that uh, uh, the labor market is on demand. So I would say that uh, we should continue to watch uh, claims as closely as we were during those uh, several uh, past weeks. And also one interesting uh, data uh, that I would like to point out uh, next week will be auto sales. Oh, yes. We'll probably see a rebound in auto sales and that's gonna be another uh, very first initial green shoot. Right. Um, but uh, that that is probably not gonna be a very strong one. But this will uh, allow us to assess how much was, uh, how much demand was lost due to the shutdowns and how much demand
0: will be lost
5: during right. the lost well, personal
0: income. And we recently ca- caught up with the head of Porsche North America, um, and he talked about how a lot of their dealerships are reopening or have reopened back in the U.S. So uh, certainly that should uh, match up with some of that data points, or we'll see how it plays out.
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: You know, Jason, one thing that's happening as a result of the pandemic is the pharma and biotech company, uh, company, community and companies, really. And companies. Yeah, have kicked into high gear, big time, pivoting where they need to, uh, just trying to figure out how to deal with this virus. This story is so cool, and it feeds into, I love genetics. uh, And this story in Business Week is about a biotech startup that really aims to make use of humanity's genetic Outliers, it's called Rare DNA, um, to really help deal with a lot of issues that are out there, but also COVID-related re- uh, rela- uh, ones. Bloomberg Business Week feature writer and New York Times bestselling author, Ashley Vance. He wrote this story on Variant Bio. We'll find out about that company in just a moment. Ashley, by the way, host of Hello World. He joins us on the phone from Palo Alto. Also, here is Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber. He's on the phone from Brooklyn. Um, this is a really cool story, Joel
3: yeah the uh any, anytime
1: Ashley's like you know raises his hand and wants to do something in sort of biotech or science with with crazy people you're always uh you're always interested but what really caught my eye was when um he took to Twitter and start talking about the story and it was just like such a great simplification of it which is like don't we all want to be superheroes? Ashley, what what are these guys working on
6: yeah I mean this is a crazy one uh, the, the, the company variant bio is essentially got people that are going all over the world to try to find very unique humans, usually kind of isolated indigenous populations where, you know, one example, we have... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One example we have in the story um, is is the Sherpa people in in Nepal. Uh, You know, so typically people that live at high altitudes, they adapt over time to have oxygen levels that are the same as as the rest of us, whereas the Sherpas actually, they survive in in what would be a hypoxic or oxygen-starved state for the rest of us, and they, they leave these healthy, active lifestyles. And so the thought is... You study their DNA, you find out what makes them special, and then you develop a drug or a therapy based on that. And so in the case of something like COVID, um, where people are suffering from hypoxia, maybe you have a therapy that, that helps alleviate a lot of those stresses. And so going around the world and finding all kinds of these, these superpowers and then developing drug based off them.
1: So, Ashley, that's like the ultimate science project uh, in many ways. How can you get your arms around? How can we get the, our arms around? the chances, the efficacy? What, what do you make of it? How do you how do, how do you do that?
6: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated and, and with any drug discovery program, this is like a multi-year process. but there are there's examples of where this has been done in the past, So there are mainstream, cholesterol drugs, for example, that are based off of the genes of people of African descent who, who seem to have very low LDL or, or bad cholesterol levels. Like, we know we know the science works. The weird thing is that nobody's tried this approach on quite this, like, systemic, large-scale effort. You know, the, the biggest gene sequencing stuff that we all know about is, like, 23andMe and Ancestry, and they're sort of sequencing tons of people with relatively similar DNA, and then hoping to study this this massive data and find um, interesting insights, whereas these guys are reading papers and studies about these very unique people and then going sort of straight to them where they know that there's something interesting there already. Um, So, you know, but it becomes a question of of how long does it take to develop these things, and it's many years for sure.
1: And so, all right, Ashley, go ahead, Joel. Well, that's – I kind of just want to know, like, if if they can pull this off, like, where where does their version of their company – where do they go? Yeah, I mean, this is – you know,
6: we're talking about them partnering with large pharmaceutical companies to actually get the the drugs to market. And, and like, on this journey, I should point out, I mean, there's huge questions around the ethics and morals of all this. You know, one of the biggest – Reasons this hasn't been done before is that that you have to you have to find these people you have to you have to be careful about how you work with, uh, work with them and then you know, hopefully come up with some sort of compensation model where maybe they get subsidized or free versions of the drugs, they get the data based on this, and then maybe even like royalties off of a drug. And so, um, you know, the company is already operating in the Faroe Islands in Pakistan and New Zealand and Nepal. And so they're, over the next couple of years, just going to expand out these locations and then get to the drug discovery work.
0: Hey, you know, I do wonder, Ashley, too, that because of COVID-19, has it made them kind of step up their efforts? Well...
6: Sort of, it's gone the opposite way, actually. Oh, really? You know, so in, well, I mean, like in Nepal, they were pretty far along. And the, the study in Nepal would be the one that's most applicable to, to COVID, and they were ready. You know, they've already yeah. been there for months. They were ready to get all these deals signed, and and now, you know, the, the principals can't sort of travel to Nepal to, to do some of this work on the ground. And so I talked to a doctor there. Who, who's been working with variant and he's like, look, you know, we thought we were going to have this all go in the summer and now maybe it's like the end of this year or rolling in, into next year. So, you know, this is a company that has to literally scour the earth and travel and do all this stuff. And, and so it's made it
1: tricky. All right, Ashley Vance. It's a great piece as always. Love your writing. Uh, love catching up with you and looking forward to catching up with you soon to talk uh, SpaceX as well. That scrubbed launch. we I believe yeah. is uh, rescheduled for this weekend So eager to hear what comes out On the other side of that Ashley Vance, feature writer And as Carol pointed out Best-selling author Host of Hello World Joining us on the phone from Palo Alto Our thanks to Joel Weber The editor of the magazine I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. Hey, How about you let me drive?
6: Oh no, 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 no
1: Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please I'll do the driving Drive home. Excuse me I want to drive
0: It is time for the drive to the close. And you know, Jason, as Charlie mentioned earlier, man, we have seen tremendous swings in today's trade alone. He mentioned the Dow at its low was down about 369 points at its highs, was up about 82 points. And right now we're little change. So it's really been a very volatile day. Let's talk about it. Our next guest has been managing money for over four decades. Barry James is with us, portfolio manager at the Ohio-based James Investment Research, and he joins us on the phone from Ohio. Barry, how's, uh, how's life in Ohio right now?
3: Well, we're, we're coming back to life, let me put it that way. Um, where I am in the Dayton area wasn't hit very hard, and uh, it seems that uh, folks are doing what they're supposed to do here, and I'm getting my crew back into our offices now as well, so uh, mm-hmm. it seems to be going forward.
1: And so what is that like? I mean, to running a business, because I think so many, so many times we talk to uh, investors like yourself, Barry, and, you know, we talk macro and we talk markets and we talk stocks and we're going to do all of those things. But, you know, you're also running a business. You know, you have to think about your people. And, and that's a very, you know, as they say, important asset, maybe your most important asset. I do wonder what sort of process you go through of, of sort of getting back to it.
3: Well, what we're doing is gradual. <laughs> Most of the folks can work at home and have been yeah. working at home, and so what we've got is over the next month, uh, we'll be uh, staggering people in, and then going to more of a you know a, a full complement here in the office. But a lot of folks can work from home, and. Uh, if anybody's uncomfortable, they right. come in. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah
1: and I'm, I was going to say probably we'll choose to continue doing that for free either part of the time or, you know, most of the time, whatever that is. It's it's, inter- it's interesting how we've all adjusted uh, so dramatically. Well, mean speaking of adjustments, how have you adjusted your investments in this, in this market? I think a lot of people, you know, looking at their 401Ks and their IRAs, you know, have seen a, a really remarkable bounce back over the past few months. We're going to end this week uh, in the green – what's your strategy here?
3: Well, that's, uh, that's they're absolutely right. It, it has been kind of on the retail side that has really been supporting this and pushing it up because institutional guys like me <laughs> haven't been quite so positive. We, yeah. We're still holding some cash back. Um, we see things as kind of BCAD, you know, the time thing. BC is before coronavirus and AD is after the disease. And so Uh, As we look at this uh, right now, it's kind of like a character in the Truman Show. You know, everything's happy and good, and yet behind things are a little ominous. And I don't think that's quite realized yet—just how bad earnings are going to be. You know, Mm -hmm. some you know um, expectations are down 42% for the you know the. For this quarter, yeah. um, and, and the consumers aren't spending, they've just, you know, I still have the same money in my wallet just about from about a month and a half ago, so <laughs> that's not good for the economy. So those things, I think, will start to seep into people's uh, mindsets, uh, and uh, this rally may wind up taking a little bit of a breather, and so that's what we're looking for, um, is that breather, and then uh, possibly do some buying then, because uh, there is some, some built-up demand, I think, that will be coming out over the next... Uh, next... next couple quarters
0: you know it's so funny just as you said that we were thinking uh and our producer paul brennan thinking the same thing uh when we talked with jen rosenthal of tribeca you know talking about productions and filming and content but that whole idea of ac and bc you know before (laughs) corona and after corona like our world will be split in those ways um and i do feel like barry because we are seeing more reopening new york city Uh, You know, being much more formal and specific about, you know, looking now with, a you know, putting out a date uh, about the possibility of opening up, you know, with phase one. So you do feel like things are getting back to, quote, unquote, normal. So tell me about how you look at the market. Have we bottomed out? Do we stay here? Do we start to climb as new data points start to maybe hopefully reflect the other side, AC, after Corona?
3: well a lot of people are have a fear of missing out i think that's what's uh, driving the market now because any news is good news <laughs> whether it's slapping china on the hand or you know you know troubles in the mid you know the middle part of our country uh the market just seems to ignore it so there is there is definitely that upward pull for the moment um but uh, as we look at it there's uh, you know valuations are actually right back to where they were before this decline and in some cases even higher than they've been like all the way back to 2000. Uh, so you've got that. You've got the, the poor earnings uh, scenario that we have unfolding. And I, I view this more as, as a broken leg. I uh, had one after parachuting accident uh, <laughs> in my youth, and it takes a while to repair. And I yeah. think that's what's happened. The, the, the economy's had a, a, you know, a break, and uh, it's going to take a little while for this to come back.
1: Uh, talk to us a little bit about Costco. We, we heard their earnings. It is obviously a popular brand. Uh, I live in the New York suburbs, and we got a couple within a few miles uh, of us. And certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, there were literal you know, lines and lines of, of cars and, and folks lining up to get in. But how has that name, uh, how, how has it performed for you, and, and what do you think about it going forward?
3: Well, it, it's done done well for us uh, in this environment and it's uh, you know, it's a very uh, solid company. It's kind of you know best in class in terms of, of the retailer. Um, it's had some extra costs. And I think that came out today in the in the news um, with the whole coronavirus things in terms of, uh, you know, sanitation and wages and the like. But they've really made a huge dent, uh, I think, um, you know, in the e-commerce area, big jump, over 60 percent jump. And that'll probably be something that, that carries over for quite some time. So um, hold up well, we expect, uh, regardless of, of what happens, if we have a, a second wave or not, and and um, we, we see it as, uh, you know, a, a company that uh, has what it takes to, to get through this time.
0: Hey, just got about 20, 30 seconds here. Verizon's another one. We've talked several times with Hans Vestberg, uh, the CEO of the company. What is it, just quickly, Barry, that you like about Verizon?
3: Well, uh, good payout. <laughs> ah, the dividend. Uh, you know, 4.3 di- dividend and the rock-solid dividend. Uh, balance sheet. Uh, it's uh, it's not that correlated. The, the price the movements aren't that correlated with the stock market overall. Uh, it's very, very sticky business. It's a, it's a consumer staple almost. <laughs> you could call it that. And this 5G is going to be good for them for quite some time. And uh, it should really start to monetize in 2021.
1: All right, Barry James, good to get some time with you. Good luck with the great reopening as we all face that down. Portfolio Manager for James Investment Research joining us on the phone from the Dayton area. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.